Hello and welcome along once again to It'll Be Alright in the 90s, the podcast that went to see Red Hot Chili Peppers at the weekend and can't believe they didn't play any tracks from their 1995 masterpiece One Hot Minute album. I'm Stu Scar Tissue Joslin and joining me as always is Alex Give It Away Greenwood. Greeny, good evening mate, how are you? Yeah, I'm good thanks. Um, music is my aeroplane, you know that, <laughs> you know that full well. One Hot Minute um, is such an underrated album, Dave Navarro is such an underrated uh, member of, of in the Chili Peppers, uh, you know, multiverse, I guess you could yeah. call it. Yeah, um, yeah, but I suppose John John Frusciante wouldn't want to play any of any of his stuff, would he? So no, he's not with his fierce ego and pride. We know that, um, mm. but it is a shame though because that is a great song, and always makes me think of that Woodstock '94 appearance. Was it '94 where they had the light bulb heads? Yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah definitely. No, I... Definitely the lesser talked about of the Woodstock, the '90s Woodstocks, isn't it? '94. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people forget that there was a '94 version. Because 99 gets so many of the headlines for the, <laughs> the the shit show that it was, but um, yeah, that, I, I think of that gig anyway when I think of that era of the Chili Peppers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's right that we should begin on a musical note because our guest tonight is uh, John Amor, who's going to be uh, bring coming in to tell us all about his 1990s, and we're very much looking forward to that. Yeah, it's going to be great. Before we go any further, our sponsor for this episode is Great Mills. If you simply quote the code All Right 90s at the checkout at participating stores. You can claim 5% off the purchase price of any four-piece bathroom suite in the penthouse brown, cashmere beige, or avocado colour schemes. That's great, Mills. Make yourself at home. Uh, <laughs> um, I've, been wait- I've been waiting for us to get great Mills. I knew we yeah, were going to yeah. get them sooner or later. Yeah. It took um, us a while to get them on side, but um, yeah, you know, yeah. we, we got there in the end. We got there in the end. Do you have any yeah. particular memories of, of the Chippenham branch? Uh, well, yeah, many, uh, many uh, a weekend. I would have gone down to the Bumpers Farm uh, retail uh, estate with my dad because he was a uh, painter and decorator uh, so we would have been in there um, a lot and then of course it um, it moved didn't it to that the newer area near the Sainsbury's mm-hmm. um, which was yep. it was never as good as Bumpers Farm um, <laughs> in my opinion I think it all went downhill a bit from there then it became a focus yeah um, yeah we don't have a it's, it's an M&S food hall now we don't have a we don't have a local great meals anymore but yeah if, if you can find your local store uh, go and use that code uh, by all means so my great mill story, and this is one that my my mum, at the age of 33, she still likes to wheel this out on occasion. Um, apparently, in about 1991, when I was three, I wet myself in the Chippenham branch of Great Mills. I don't remember it. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't know anything about it, but for some reason, well, it still gets brought up from time to time. Um, I'm just glad that it got the blue plaque that it deserved, that incident. Um, <laughs> Um, well, there you go. I don't think I've ever wet myself in any of the um, the retail properties in the, the Greater Chippenham area, but I probably have. I'm sure I have. I'll tell you what, if you have listened at home, um, please do write in and let us know. We'd, we'd love to know. Maybe we can create a um, a heat map of sorts of, uh, <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of yeah. retail parks, uh, units that were urinated in by our listeners during the 90s. <laughs> We have some correspondence, uh, which is always nice. We always appreciate. Let me just get it up. Um, we had Kate Pro, legend of the pod. Kate Pro got in touch with some uh, a sort of selection of thoughts, actually, on various things. A sort of Kate Pro update that she she gives me every now and again. Oh, lovely. In relation to the, I think this is probably in relation to the birthday episode where we were talking about snacks. Um, she said, "Does anyone remember the fish and chips crisps slash nibbles?" that were around in the 90s. 
I think I know what she means. I can picture the packet. And I think it might still be around. The, the packet looks a bit like a newspaper. Yes, you know yes, what I mean? of course. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. still around, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But um, yeah, it definitely would have been around in, in the late 90s, I'd have thought. Um, and a good birthday snack, I think. Um, and she also, this was, I can't remember exactly when we were talking about this. I think it was probably in the last episode in relation to cereal toys that were given away in cereal boxes. And she says um, she wants to give a shout out to the spoke bike spoke jangle things. Because we obviously talked about the reflectors that you got on your bike spokes. Um, Kellogg's famously gave some away in, in their cereals in the 90s. But I don't think we mentioned the jangle things. And they definitely, no, deserve, definitely deserve a shout out as one of the most 90s bike uh, accessories. We definitely had some. I don't know if we came in a cereal box or we just bought them or what, but um, we had a few. Occasionally you'd hear someone coming. Their, their <laughs> wheel would be full of them and it'd make a right racket coming down the road. I have no idea if kids have them anymore. Probably not. Probably couldn't get one on, on an electric scooter. No, I suppose what... not. That's a shame. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. That's a real shame. Yeah. And yeah, finally... the bastion of the 90s goes by the wayside. Yeah. And finally she says, uh, well, she's just a little comment here that I, I, I went back and listened and I couldn't work out, but she says, uh, drawing your, as in your stew, as in you stew, mm-hmm. during your retelling of the school trip uh, sleepover, yeah, you mentioned yeah. in the birthday episode, it sounds like you said the C word. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure if you did. We would have bleeped it out if you had. But I'm sorry. If anyone, if any How other, dare you? if any other listeners heard that, we apologise. He, I, I think it was must have been a slip of the audio because I couldn't hear it when I went back and listened. Um, yeah. No, I certainly, I certainly wouldn't have done. Um, no. If, if, it, if it sounds like it, I, I apologise and. Uh, no, yeah, it definitely is. It's not something I not something I would do on the podcast. Uh, not something I do in general. Um, so, so yeah, apologies to anyone who was offended, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll get it sorted out. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, thanks for pointing that out, Kate. And we also have some correspondence from the lovely McRufus, friend of the pod, who often sends us some great correspondence on Instagram. So McRufus had a couple of things to say. Uh, in relation to the uh, birthday episode, um, they say that uh, Pizza Hut birthdays were definitely a thing for me too. Uh, they once made me stand on my chair on the already raised area of the room whilst I was made to hold a red balloon, brackets, which was the same colour as my face at this point, uh, and they sang happy birthday. It was at the Shaw Ridge Pizza Hut in Swindon after we'd been bowling and then seen Aladdin at the cinema. So... That sounds like a horrible experience, but also a, a really sort of the real essence of 90s birthdays there. So there was Pizza Hut, there was a cinema to see Aladdin, mm-hmm. and there was bowling. So oh, a real sure. trifecta sure. of terror there for the for 90s birthdays. <laughs> um, so thank you for that. Um, but she also posited a theory, which I thought was really interesting, so I wanted to bring to the table. Not related specifically to the 90s, but to nostalgia as a whole. She thinks the summer that you leave school is the most nostalgic summer in anyone's life. And I would say that's true. Oh, so yeah, 100% got... agree. Yeah, I yeah. still long for the for the long summer nights of 2005. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. 2003 for me, hottest, hottest summer on record um, at that point. Um, and yeah, absolutely oh. the most nostalgic. Wonderful. Summer of anyone's life. Uh, and then finally, Hannah Kelly, Fletcher, friend of the pod, um says in relation to the cigarettes and alcohol episode of course hannah did contact us for this episode to say that she used to sell cigarettes from the news agent which was her first job 
I think it was in the 90s and she gave us a price. Um, but she also says that her first taste of alcohol was sherry from her nan. And she wanted, to, she wanted to know why they make sherry glasses perfect for the size of children. If anyone's got any answers to that question, we'd love to know. But it's a good point, I think. Uh, and then also in relation to what the most 90s footwear was, she also thought kickers, which did come up. Um, but she also said daps. I thought it was quite interesting. I think maybe daps, or as they're called in other parts of the country or the world, uh, plimsolls, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, so are we talking the... The uh, the sort of black rubber shoes with a little bit of elastic in, yes. in the middle, which yeah. were a mainstay of the PE kit. Uh, yeah, in primary exactly. school PE kit throughout the 90s. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I, I do wonder, they were probably around for decades before the 90s and we just never knew. But yeah, I mean, all through school, well, primary school, big, big, uh, big look, the DAP. Mine had laces. I never had the ones with elastic. It's a bit embarrassing. In a way that anything that's slightly different is embarrassing when you're at school. But um, yeah, there you go. Good point, uh, Hannah, anyway, with the daps. Um, so thank you for all that correspondence. Uh, oh, actually, also, sorry, uh, Craig Fletcher, uh, husband of the pod, um, <laughs> says the most 90s dessert, because uh, this was something that we had discussed in the last episode, what were the most 90s dessert? I also put it on social media. He says that apple rounds were big after-dinner treats when he was growing up. Uh, and I know that Craig grew up in Newcastle, so I don't know if it's a regional thing. I don't really know much about apple rounds. Do you, no, have you ever, have you ever me neither. We'll have to ask Craig to write back in and, and expand on that for us for the next episode so that we can yeah. inform the people. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I refer to him as the husband of the pod. I think it's because I just read out a message from Hannah, <laughs> who is his wife. So mm-hmm. it was a husband and wife sort of correspondence uh double act there yeah um both of which we appreciate um so yeah if anyone else wants to get in contact with us we'll give the details as usual at the end you don't have to be married to get in contact single singleton's also welcome <laughs> before we close the correspondence part of the show um there are a couple of bits of correspondence from me um mm-hmm. so so first of all uh going back to the the size of the sherry glasses so here's some classic 90s parenting for you uh my parents when i was six seven eight years old when we had a sunday dinner used to uh, allow me to have a small a small like as in a couple of mouthfuls uh, glass of wine nice and i had my own tiny wine glass which, which, <laughs> was, which was enough to hold uh, just enough amount of wine for an eight-year-old child um mm-hmm. so that, that so thanks for that gina and glenn um the other thing uh, coming from our children's tv episode two-parter with sam michael from from a couple of weeks ago which was very well received and thanks to sam again for coming on to talk to us i was doing some more research around sooty and co and i uncovered something which um i i should have really researched at the time and i, I didn't feel like it should pass without any comment so i'm just going to read this out to you now and see what you think okay okay yeah a particularly controversial episode of the show was sue's babies where sue pretended to be pregnant it received complaints from viewers, was reported in the national press, and made E4's top 20 most controversial TV programmes at number 20. On the E4 show, Brenda Longman, who plays Sue in the show, said the idea came about because Matthew tended to write for his daughter. Matthew said he recalled his daughter wandering into his room with a pillow up her jumper, saying she was going to have a baby. He also said how it was a sort of educational piece. Uh, okay. And then, and then here's the... Uh, Here's, here's the final sentence, which, which comes from nowhere and uh, is probably the best part of the whole thing. Yuri Geller said the story was played in a nice and humorous way. <laughs> <laughs> now, I presume this has been lifted from he's been a talking 
looking ahead on E4's top 20 most controversial TV mm. programs. But, yeah. but it's nice to get Yuri Geller's opinion on this, I think. Oh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, he's a good sort of 90s pundit, isn't he? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, definitely. definitely. Um, a yardstick I, to measure measure these things by. Good old Yuri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually read about this as well um, when we were doing prep for that episode, but I also didn't mention it in that in the episode itself. There was a there's a line where Sue says something like, "I've got the whole Manchester United team inside me. I feel like I've got the whole Manchester United <laughs> team right. inside me, or something like that," <laughs> which sounds clearly um, yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, a, jo- a joke for the parents, possibly. <laughs> yeah. I guess so, but um, I did think that was funny. Yeah, that uh, yeah. Sooty and Co had this 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 moment of controversy in its past um, for such a, a lovely kids program. On the face of it, there was this this blue side. I thought that was good. <laughs> yeah. Matthew Corbett letting his dark side out. Time again for what's the most nineties, and we're going down the literary avenue this week. So, Alex, what I want to know is, what do you think is the most nineties children's book series? Oh, series? Was it series? I just, I've just gone for a specific book. Is that okay? No, no, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, okay, no yeah. problem. No problem. Although you saying series has made me think of another one that I haven't, I didn't come up with. Um, the 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 book I've gone for is is Flower Babies. But really, that is to represent any Anne Fine book, because I think of Anne Fine as being the quintessential late 80s and 90s children's author. Um, She also wrote uh, Bill's New Frock, which was a big book. Um, I remember being read to me at school. Uh, And she also wrote Madame Doubtfire, which was obviously made into Mrs. Doubtfire, the film. Um, And I just think her books were so big at this time. She was the author... Uh, that was sort of, I think, probably most often read in primary schools in the 90s. Flower Babies was the main one that I remember. I'm sure a lot of other people will. So, yeah, that was my choice, really, and fine. But the, when you said series, that did make me think Animal to Farthing Wood seems very 90s. I, I assume it was written in the 90s. The TV series was definitely in the 90s. I should have talked about that in the kids' TV. I t- totally forgot about that. Oh, Actually, these I'd... things always come up. It's like when yeah. I forgot about Spender for the, uh, for the forgotten <laughs> TV one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that program, um, and I've read all the books as well. Loved those books. Um, so yeah, one of them, I suppose. What about you? Well, I mean, I, I had a couple of thoughts, but then I had to go with one that I actually indulged in and, and read a lot. So <clears throat> when I was thinking about book series, I thought about Goosebumps, uh, which was something that I I wasn't really into. I had a board game of Goosebumps, bizarrely, but I don't think I ever read one of the books. Um, Animal Ark was another one, which was um, which was ubiquitous in uh, in certainly in my primary school. And before we move on to my choice, I just want to do a little animal art quiz with you, if I can. Oh, please. Yeah, because all of the titles of the animal art books, and there are about 50 of them, follow the uh, standard format X in the Y, right? So it might be uh, dog at the door or, or okay. something like yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. So what I want to do is I've got five here. I'm going to tell you who the animals are, and I want you to guess where they are, bearing in mind that they will always be in an alliterative place yeah. okay okay yeah yeah so first one puppies in the parlor no mm. pound no were they, were they stray um uh, post office <laughs> i'd have read that it's actually puppies in the pantry ah oh. oh, there you go well, that's so. what i meant parlor i'm talking about parlor it's like it's not like the 1930s all right pantry. i'll give you half, i'll give you half for that i'll give you half for that okay, okay. badger in the 
um back office <laughs> um b uh he's running things the... from the back office yeah <laughs> yeah um bedroom nope sounds too blue doesn't it yeah um yeah. i don't know what is it what's b? matthew corby wrote that one um it's it's badger in the basement basement of course oh, it okay so now we're going out on a bit of a limb now okay yeah shetland in the <laughs> shetland uh shetland in the shed correct shetland in okay, the shed yes. for one point brilliant Good. okay lamb in the um and this this is one where it's it's, it's not really a room i have to say lard. is it the larder no it's not the larder no oh um you might have a room for this or for doing this i should say uh Oh, I don't know. In the interests of uh, editing, I, I, I give up. <laughs> it's lamb in the laundry. Oh, in the laundry. Okay, yeah. All right, last one. Otter in the... <laughs> Otter in the... Um... They've had one similar to this previously. Uh... Oh, God. What, what begins with ot? Everyone else, people listening are going to be, like, shouting <laughs> out. Um, what's, does, does it begin with O-T or is it... It doesn't. No, it's, it's O-U-T. Outhouse. Otter in the outhouse, correct. Okay. Lovely yeah. bit of content there. I'm sure everybody really enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so my favourite uh, children's books were the slimline volumes of uh, collected Garfield cartoons that you used to be able to get mm. in, in, the, in the little paperbacks. Each yeah, yeah. Title. Um, I love those. I would always collect them at car boots or, uh, or you know, charity shops or wherever I might find them. Um, I'm still, still a big Garfield fan to this day. Follow him on Instagram um, for, <laughs> to, to catch up with what he's up to. Um, I remember one of my favourites was a, a big long storyline where uh, Garfield, uh, John, his owner, Odie the dog, and loads of passers-by incrementally, they all keep getting caught up in this roller blind that they've all got caught up in. Mm -hmm. uh, and I couldn't remember how it ends because it went on, for, it goes on for like pages and pages. So I looked it up online and um, eventually a fireman just comes along and, ju and just cuts the blind with some scissors and then lets them all out and everybody celebrates. Um, okay. <laughs> and everybody's happy um but yeah no those books brought me a great deal of uh, a great deal of enjoyment in my childhood so no hesitation in giving the garfield slimline volumes my vote for the most 90s children's books and fine and garfield together together again side by side in the ledger yeah absolutely superb I did also want to mention uh, a book called The Turbulent Term of Tyke Tyler, which was actually published in 1977, but I really remember this from primary school. It was a book about uh, an unruly child, and then there's this real twist at the end where it turned out who you, th you, th you assumed they were a boy because they were because of their behaviour, and they actually turned out to be a girl. And I couldn't remember, I didn't know what it was called for years, but I eventually found out. And I just wanted to say that in case anyone else remembers that book or remembers a book where the, there's a big twist at the end and it turned out it was a girl. Um, and it was the turbulent term of Tyke Tyler. Um, that might only appeal to people who went to Regis School between <laughs> 1989 and 1996, but there you go. Um, just wanted to put a call out. Let us know. Our guest this time is one of Wiltshire's favourite musical sons. In 1991, he burst onto the worldwide blues scene playing guitar with The Hoax, a band who is still regarded as one of Europe's best. And since 1999, he's prolifically released his own music, the most recent of which came in 2018 with the critically acclaimed Colour in the Sky album. He's just returned from a string of performances at this year's Glastonbury Festival, and tonight he's here to tell us what the 1990s means to him. It's an honour and a pleasure to welcome onto the podcast John Amor. John, the first question has to be, mate, how was Glasto? Oh, well, I, I seem to have spent the last few days uh, moaning about having to play Glastonbury. 
<laughs> which isn't very cool, is it? Uh, it was a great experience. Um, it's just hard work walking everywhere. It's so it's so massive, isn't it? It's just it's like a massive city. It's not my, the first time I've been there, I should add. But um, so I knew what to expect. Um, but we were we were playing uh, three gigs on on some of the outside stages there, and uh, it just seemed like a hell of a distance between them all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I did enjoy it. Uh, but it, it broke me. Uh, I got to be honest. I'm still recovering. I think. Uh, well, we are honoured and privileged to have you in your first public appearance since uh, <laughs> since you returned. It, it really is a, it really is a pleasure to have you, mate. Thank you, man. Um, right. We're going to um, do our usual interview questions for you, John, um, as we have done with previous guests. And it makes sense to start with the beginning of the decade. So we want to ask you what your life was like in 1990. Well, 1990, I was uh, I was just about to turn 19. I was 18, 19. Um, and I was kind of in limbo, really. I'd completely flunked my A-levels. Um, I left left school in '89. I, I mean, just made a complete mess of my exams, <laughs> um, mainly because I don't think I knew what the hell I wanted to do in my life. I didn't really want to go to university. Um, I, I, all I really wanted to do at that point was was play cricket and um, play guitar in my bedroom, which I was quite happy doing. I didn't really have many mates because I lived in a little village in the middle of nowhere. Didn't have a girlfriend really. Didn't have a job. <laughs> Um, and so I was, I was drifting a little bit, but I eventually did. I eventually did get a part-time job in a in a wine shop in Devizes, uh, which is slightly ironic for someone who eventually became a fully qualified alcoholic. <laughs> but uh, that's a whole other podcast. Um, and if I look out my window here in my living room, I can see the very wine shop that I worked worked at <laughs> just across the street. Which is, so I haven't come very far. Um, but yeah, I was working there during the days, going home and playing my guitar in the evenings on my own, playing along to records. And at the weekends, I was running up and down a cricket field, uh, bowling my heart out for my for my cricket club. And that's that's all I really wanted to do at that stage. But I was um, I was being pestered by uh, a kid who lived up the road from me called Robin Davy, who had just started playing guitar. And he kept ringing my house uh, and trying to get me up to his house for a jam with him and his brother. Um, and his brother had started playing guitar as well, Jesse. And Rob eventually moved on the bass and they kept they kept hassling me to go up and jam with him. I really didn't want to because I just wanted to play on my own. I was perfectly happy and I didn't think they'd be very good. <laughs> um, but I eventually gave in and went up and had a jam with them. And uh, that was that. I guess was the beginnings of, of the hoax. Yeah, in in Great Cheverell, in the deepest darkest Wiltshire. Um, so that was that was that how that started. And we did our first gig. My my first public performance, I think, was September nineteen ninety in in Great Cheverell Pavilion uh, for a birthday party. In fact, I think it was Robin Jess's dad's birthday party, and he sang with us. We did four or five songs, I think, but it, that was my first first time I sort of played in front of anybody, and it was, yeah, I, th I guess I think I got the bug. I wouldn't go so far as to say it was a shaft of light, but um, that's what what got us started. Okay, so if we move uh, forward a few years in the decade, then I move on to 1995. So 
the hooks form properly in 1991 and then by this time the first albums come out is that correct uh no we hadn't done our, our uh oh yeah 95 yes absolutely uh yeah 95 really was the thick of it um we had quite a sharp rise once we did get started in 91 um our reputation grew quite quickly and we eventually signed to uh we signed to warner music it was east west records in in britain and it was um atlantic records in america and 95 we were we were touring constantly non-stop really and in the middle of that year in in, in the middle of a roasting summer we we toured the us for six or seven weeks uh on a bus literally on a sleeper bus going coast to coast uh which was amazing you know but i think back to that now and i wonder if i really appreciated it at the time i was 24 by this point i celebrated my 24th birthday while we were out there i was in colorado and um i think we were all just so uh confident and cocky that we we thought we'd be touring the states every year you know uh but as it happened we 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 never went back <laughs> so i look i look back and i think well did i did i really appreciate it for what it was then but you you, you tend not to when you're that age and you've got everything ahead of you you know everything had gone right for us up to that point and i think about 1995 as the last year really of uh innocent joyful hopeful um music playing before it all got a little bit twisted with the record company and pressure started to come onto us to record singles and um go mainstream and do certain tours and that we didn't really want to do and we weren't very good at playing ball we weren't very good at towing the line with the record company and so that caused a bit of friction and that, that that's when it all started to get a little bit well music business like i suppose you know i i think in 95 is the point where all that nonsense started and and the fun began to fade a little bit from it all um but it was an amazing year you know to go over to the states and and do that tour was was incredible really and we we were going all over europe and i spent most of that year in a in a van with a bunch of musicians <laughs> you know as i was really that was yeah that was really the thick of the the tour inside mm-hmm. yeah sounds cool. like an absolute dream had you had you played um on jules holland before this as well was that 94 yeah. that was yeah i think that was december 94 um i, I wish you hadn't brought that up because uh, <laughs> <laughs> i look i look at that clip or i'm forced to look at it from time to time and i I just don't know what we look like. Uh, I don't know what we were thinking, what we were wearing. It's like some sort of theatre company. Uh, Do you still have the blue suit? Have you still got it? <laughs> I, I think the blue suit is hanging in in a wardrobe at my mum's house, probably. Or actually, it's probably wrapped in cellophane and un- tucked under a bed or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, my mum, she wouldn't have thrown it away. Uh, but it's just dreadful looking at that, you know. <laughs> And I don't, I don't look on, look back at, at that experience as a as a very happy one. We didn't, we didn't have a, that great a time. I mean, you're doing it. It's two days, I think, as I remember, it was back then. You know, doing camera rehearsals and sound checks and stuff, and then a day filming. 
And, uh, you know, we were treated very much as this uh, young unknown band that they had discovered playing in a pub. And it was like a, a, a sort of charity gesture getting us on the show. That's kind of what it felt like. There was no mention of the fact that we were actually signed to, to Warner Music and we were fully fledged touring band, you know. So I felt a little bit, little bit patronised. And uh, I remember, you know, we didn't have roadies. We turned up in our old red van, left a massive oil puddle on the BBC car park, <laughs> um, had to pack up all our own gear at the end of it. And when we'd, when we'd done and finally got to the green room, everybody had, had, uh, had gone, you know, and we were oh. eating cold sausage rolls that were left on the plate. <laughs> but, you know, again, it's one of those things, it's, it's great to have done it. You know, it's, I can say I've been on Later with Jules and... Uh, I don't I don't look back on it fondly, but I'm glad we did it, yeah, for sure. Well out of respect then we, we won't post a post a link to to that clip in the description for this episode. Uh, well normally we would have done, but we'll leave that off. I appreciate that and I'll forever be in your debt. <laughs> no, no problem, mate. I think if anyone wants to see that blue suit, they can see it on um on trigger when uh, Del Boy falls through the bar. <laughs> um Okay, so let's move to the end of the decade then, uh, John. How about 1999? Where where were you in 99? Well, 99 was kind of the end of uh, the hoax the first time around. And again, I think I was probably back in limbo a little bit. A lot of things were ending. I'd become quite disillusioned with uh, not just that band, but with, with music altogether. I, I, was, um, I was tired, I think. Um, I felt quite stifled in the band. You know, there were two guitars in, in two guitar players in that band. For those who don't know, um, both of us played very loud and very long solos, and it was becoming increasingly clear to me that there wasn't room for two of us, and there didn't seem to be any sense of compromise to me. Um, so I wasn't really enjoying the shows very much. My songs weren't really making it through to the to the set. Um, so I felt quite suffocated and stifled and decided that I wanted to quit that band. And, and I think, as I remember rightly, I restarted my desires to be some sort of screenwriter, <laughs> write scripts and screenplays and stuff. But I soon realised I wasn't very good at that. So um, I went back to writing songs and I was at back end of 99. I was I was quite productive uh, writing my own stuff. Um, so it, it was the end of something and, and it was the beginning of something that was also the end of a relationship. I'd been in a, a four year long distance relationship with a girl I'd met whilst on tour in 95 and that came to an end. Um, yeah, it was odd. I mean, Man United won the treble. There were all sorts of terrible things. Happening. <laughs> oh, you don't have to tell us. Um <laughs> So just before we, we leave the uh, sort of looking at, at the, the decade as a whole and, and your experiences of it, I have to, I just wanted to mention uh, the recording of Humdinger in, in 1997. So so this is when you've, you've moved off of East West. And I think Jimmy Nell was on East West at the same time, which might have been why they weren't able to concentrate on you guys so much. Um, right. yeah. you, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so so you go out on your own and, and record um, Humdinger in in a farmhouse in Shropshire. Um, yeah. I rewatched the the brilliant documentary um, that you guys made uh, about 15 years ago last week, um, just, just to remind myself of it. And I, ha I have to 
I have to ask, the main question for me is the bollocks thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so where did that, where did that come out of? And, and was it a sort of, you know, was it, was it a release for you to do that? Or was it just a, um, a you know, just, just high, studio hijinks? Where did it come out of frustration, madness, isolation? Uh, <laughs> it was, you know, we, I mean, we were locked up there for, I think it was, I think it was three weeks. I think it was three weeks, you know, just, just us in this very remote farmhouse. And uh, it wasn't an easy process. I mean, we spent days just getting guitar sounds because we were that kind of fixated with getting the right tone, you know. And I think it just drove us drove us all a bit mad. Uh, I can't remember who started it. I think it was <laughs> Robin or Hugh, and it turned into a competition and who could shout it the loudest. No, he's getting fed. Bollocks! Fucking hell. Um, okay, so we like to run down a few different cultural aspects of the decade and find out um, and find out what what your favourites are, what all of our guests' favourites are. Um, so we will start with, if we could, uh, your favourite car of the nineties. So presumably you, you would have passed your test uh, early on in the nineties. So did you have a favourite car of the decade? Well, uh, I passed my test in eighty nine, mm-hmm. um, and I am going to pick my first car because it served me quite well in the in the first couple of years in the 90s I eventually came to quite an ignominious end uh which I'll tell you about but it was a it was a Fiat 128 saloon red um I called it Luigi just because it was Italian <laughs> um and uh it was very very basic it didn't have a cassette player so I did, so of course I took my Philips cassette recorder that had um, served me well with my Spectrum uh, 48K computer loading up games. I uh, retired it from that job and, and put it, sort of wedged it in the dashboard <laughs> of my, <laughs> my Fiat 128 and played blues records uh, as, as or blues cassettes as loud as I could with the windows down as I sailed through devices thinking I was cool. I think I eventually sold it to Hugh Coltman, who was the singer, in the hoax mm-hmm. uh he got very excited about buying it off me for about 50 quid i don't know um but i don't remember ever seeing him drive it and the last time i saw it it was in his wilderness of a back garden in his house in great Cheval, with sort of bushes growing out of his bonnet and oh. um, and i think he eventually towed it away and scrapped it which was a sad demise for what was ultimately a, a pretty cool wagon yeah i'm just looking at pictures of it now and it it look what or, or fiat 128 it's not your specific one but <laughs> it looks very similar to a larder i think in a good way like yeah i mean it's of a time um but yes yeah, that's aesthetically quite pleasing it's a it real was, shame it's not still around it was the thinking man's larder you know <laughs> yeah there's your episode title <laughs> Okay, so I think moving on to a topic which is obviously uh, very close, if not closest to your heart. What was your favourite album or musical act from the 90s? Well, I mean, I think you guys are aware of how tough a question this is. um, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, this is something I had to think long and hard over. Surprisingly, or maybe surprisingly, 
it wasn't it wasn't blues that immediately came to mind not blues acts or blues albums um i mean there was a a a bit of a surge in blues in the early 90s he had out he had labels like silvertone and point blank releasing pretty cool blues records but they they weren't the ones that stayed with me i had on my short list i had g love and special source the first two g love albums really made an impression on me i, I like that band a lot i remember seeing them on later with jules actually it must have been around 94 um and i thought they were extremely cool um i had reef's uh glow album on my list too i remember playing that to death um just loving the sound of it the production of it the songs you know the riffs but the album that i plumped for and the act that i plumped for is um john spencer blues explosion mm-hmm. uh their acme album 1998 um really did make an impression on me it's- Probably, it's probably his most accessible album. Um, but I think it's just very cool. The sounds on it, the, the songs again. There's a lot of humour in it, um, and just attitude. You know, um, there's a track at the end called "Attack," where it just he just opens with with John Spencer shouting, "1998 and the blues is back!" And then they unleash this relentless drum beat. You know, and just just uh, tremendous stuff. And I saw them live at the uh, London Astoria in 98, I believe. I went with Rob Davey and it was an amazing gig. They were on stage for about 50 minutes. I don't think there was a pause in the music at all. It was, it was again, relentless and assault on the senses and I, I absolutely loved it. That band, that Blues Explosion, was the blueprint for a lot of bands that followed, perhaps. And I'm thinking of people like the White Stripes or the Black Keys or, you know, that kind of vibe. Um, just very cool uh, rock and roll, you know. Uh, so, I, so I plumped for that. That album in particular uh, stuck out for me when I was going through them all. Cool. Would it be fair to say that John Spencer was, was an influence on on Amor, which was your obviously your first post-hoax band? Definitely in the mix, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I did I did want to go for a for a modern kind of approach with that first album. I wanted to embrace all those elements of um, well, I suppose I suppose um, programming and samples, um, you know, that techno side of things I guess. I wanted to combine that with with the riffs and and the kind of spirit of the hoax, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I think it is fair to say that John Spencer was in the mix there. So uh, so we'll go to the movies now. And do you have a standout uh, film of the nineties? Again, difficult one. The one I've ended up going for, ultimately, I'm going to need some adjudication from you guys. I'm not sure if it qualifies. It's not what I would call a movie um, as such. It was not released in cinemas or anything, to my knowledge. 
Uh, but it's a great piece of film. I'll come to that in a sec. I considered Toy Story because mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the Toy Story trilogy is the greatest trilogy of all time. I don't care what you say about Godfather. <laughs> um, and I also considered um, a film called Heaven's Prisoners. Now, I listened to your pod with Rob Bryan, mm-hmm. and you were talking about old music videos that used to feature clips from films, from yeah. the movies that they were soundtrack to, yeah? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, we, in the hoax, we had a song chosen to be in this movie called Heaven's Prisoners. And uh, it was the <laughs> it was the single um, <laughs> that they released alongside the film. And it was uh, a song that I wrote called 20 Ton Weight. And it's an absolute turkey of a film. And it was awful. Alec Baldwin, um, Terry Hatcher, who was in the, the Superman. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, she was in it. Uh, but it, it was terrible, and I remember watching this film for the first time, waiting to hear my song. And uh, the scene it was used in was a <laughs> was a, in a strip bar in uh, New Orleans, <laughs> and it's Alec Baldwin walking into this bar, and there's this large-chested lady giving it some on the stage, and in the background, there's me playing my little riff that I wrote, <laughs> Wiltshire. Um, ah. So I nearly, I nearly chose that one, but the one I have gone for, and I think you guys will appreciate this, because uh, it's like some kind of Greek tragedy. It's like a Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, like I say, I'm not sure if it qualifies, but it's an impossible job, featuring uh, Graham Taylor, our hero. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we'll have it. We'll have it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just <laughs> think that film is a masterpiece, and. Uh, it's everything you could want from a story. <laughs> Not only the our hero Graham Taylor and his fatal flaws and his his ultimate demise, but all the satellite characters like Laurie McMenemy talking about <laughs> Gaza being a, like a lead violinist. You've got the pump room, you know, and all the players at the time, uh, Carlton Palmer and uh, Merson and all those guys. It's just a, a fantastic cast. And yeah, yeah, what yeah. an amazing script, you know. Can we not knock it? It lays. Carlton, Carlton. It's just genius, and I could watch it over and over. So I'd like to pick that one if I can. Yeah, oh, yeah, fantastic. No, uh, no, there'll be no no quibbles about that. Um, Good. I have a couple of favourite moments myself from that movie. Um, first of all, of course, is uh, can you tell your friend he's just lost me my job? Uh, and secondly is when on camera he tells David Platt that he's lost the captaincy Yeah, and they like, sat down on, on like a park bench or something or a bench inside the training complex or something like that it's a tough scene man it's a yeah. tough scene yeah and, and it's brutal it's brutal but but you're right I mean it, it's tremendous stuff and Phil Neal just just getting up set a moment after Graham Taylor's got up and just making the same gesture <laughs> yeah same- yeah yeah, I think Phil trying to tell Nigel Clough what to do when he's when he's going on. Clough hasn't got a clue what he's trying to say. You know, it, it's just tremendous. We're all over the fucking shop then, aren't we? Key for the lock. Come on, come on. Bigger, bigger. We've done that fucking 
everything that we tell them not to do. Everything that we tell you not to do. Okay, let's move on to video game. I don't know if you played many computer games in the 90s, but uh, do you have a choice? I'm not a big gamer, uh, but I have had my my phases of playing games. Um, Again, early 90s, I remember going to a friend's house and, and playing FIFA soccer on the Mega Drive. And I thought that was tremendous cutting edge, cutting edge stuff. This would be 1993, I guess, 94, something like that. And I did go out and I bought a Mega Drive and I bought FIFA Soccer and played that. And I also I played games like Road Rash, um, Micro Machines, I think was one, Sonic, of course. But I never really, I was never really a committed gamer. I had a, a little period where I got into playing Tomb Raider on the PC. That must have been around 97, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. And I guess that was the first time I really started to appreciate video games as, as more than just a, a little little game to kill a bit of time. You know, the first time I really started to appreciate a video game as a as a story and look at them now. You know, I mean, they're, they're bigger than movies in a way, aren't they? Um, so I got quite into Tomb Raider. That would probably be the one I'd, I'd pick as my own personal standout from the 90s because I do remember getting lost in that Tomb Raider game for a good few weeks and uh, wasting a hell of a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brilliant game. It was in my one of my choices for games of the decade, so I fully support that. Awesome game. Uh, good. <laughs> you mentioned liberating your, your spectrum uh cassette player for, for for the fiat 128 the thinking man's larder um so, so so was was that a bigger thing sort of maybe towards the end of the 80s or well if you'd asked me the video game question in the 80s i'd have been all over it I'd have been, ah, I'd, okay i'd have been jet set willy turbo esprit oh, turbo uh, esprit turbo esprit just fantastic i used to stick huey lewis in the news sports album on and play turbo esprit and i was in i was in heaven uh, but that was 80s, so you know. Don't that's true. That's true. It's outside the remit, so we can't discuss it. You'll cut that. You'll cut that from the edit. <laughs> yeah. I, I've spoken about the year 2000 often enough on here for, uh, for for that to stay in. I think no problem. Um, okay, so I think for this next category, I think I might know what what you have uh, what you have planned for this, um, and I'll, I'll be quite surprised if I'm wrong. Um, so uh, can we talk about your favourite TV series of the 90s? Yeah, um, you've made me uh, disappointed with my own choice now because I think you might you, you might have you might have guessed it. For a while, I was considering um, any kind of Vic and Bob show, really, because um, they shaped our humour in the hoax. You know, the in van mm-hmm. humour when you're on the road. Um, we were always quoting Vic and Bob, whether it be Big Night Out or. Uh, Smell of Reeves and Mortimer, uh, which was pretty big at the time. Uh, and their humour has stayed with me all the way through. But if I did have to pick one, and it is comedy, and it is Alan Partridge. <laughs> <laughs> There's no need to be disappointed with that choice. That's perfect. Yeah. it's if That, that first, um, I'm Alan Partridge in the Travel Tavern. Um, you know, Partridge has been such a big part of my life uh, since then. Uh, I, I find myself sounding like him 
I find myself, I tried to write a book um, years ago. I tried to write like memoirs, but everything I wrote just sounded like Alan Partridge had written it. <laughs> and and that was uh, no good at all. Um, but yeah, that first series in the Travel Tavern, fantastic stuff. I loved it. And um, he's like a friend to me, Alan. Um, and I've been listening to his podcast, actually, uh, from the Oast House. I don't know if you've listened to that. It's mm-hmm. very, very funny. Um, so, yeah, it's it's Alan. It couldn't really be anybody else. Now, Alan, you're going to have to trade down your River 800 for a smaller car. Go on. I picked up these brochures for the new Metro. It's, it's a lovely car. Len, and if you I, do... Len, I'm not driving a mini Metro. But you do have to make substantial savings. Len, I'm not driving a mini Metro. But if you do, you can keep pear tree productions going with a skeleton staff of two... There's and no point just... finishing the sentence, Len, because I'm not driving a mini Metro. But if it... Len! I'll just speak over you. But <laughs> okay, so what about a wild card? Is there anything that doesn't fit into any of the other categories that you want to get out now? Well, I'd like to talk about service stations. Uh, oh, crack on. Oh, please. And down the country. Uh, so obviously during the 90s, we were up and down Britain uh, pretty much every, every night, it felt like, uh, <laughs> in the hoax. And service stations were a big thing. Uh, when you're driving home from Carlisle uh, at whatever time it is in the morning. And we, for a short time, we started a little book of which were the good ones to stop at and uh, which weren't. And this is obviously pre-internet, just about pre-internet. And um, so we had to make our own archive of uh, what was good and what wasn't. I remember Strensham being uh, quite high in the ratings on the M5. I remember Clackett Lane on the M25 being quite high. Um, funnily enough, the other side of Strensham, if it was Strensham northbound, you were all right, but Strensham southbound, not so much. <laughs> so we had to bear that in mind. Um, there was always um, a lot of angst when it wasn't what we would call a go-inable uh, service station. Uh, you know, you'd have to stand outside with the flowers and newspapers and asked for what you wanted. You had to go in and browse. That was part of it. That was part of the ritual. Um, and you still get that, of course, but nowadays it's all T-Bay and Gloucester services and everything's got to be organic and hand-reared and it's all about farm shops. I don't want any of that. I want a Red Bull and a Snickers. <laughs> you know? And I just remember the service stations being such such an event in the 90s um and so yeah strengthened services i would like to highlight round about 95 96 that was that was top of the pops man gold standard of service stations brilliant back then it was yeah (laughs) wonderful okay so we got we got a couple of questions that we uh we like to use to finish up with um so the first one is how do you think the 1990s shaped the person that you are today? Um, massively, of course, because, uh, you know, the my 20s uh, were the 90s. And doing what I did in my 20s, touring, touring the world, really, with a, with a cool band, visiting all these countries, um, meeting all these people, different types of people, different walks of life. Um, I was a pretty shy kid and I would always get a little bit nervous about leaving home, spending time away from home. 
but doing that really brought me out of my shell it brought me out of my comfort zone i think it got me accustomed to situations that maybe i would have found intimidating when i was younger taught me not to be intimidated by strange things um different things and i think that's carried me through in life i think i think i'm not intimidated by by new experiences as i might have been so it was an, an impo- important in that in that regard and it's just broadened my mind i think um and i like to think it's made me more accepting of other people and respectful of other people um and when you're in a band things don't normally go according to plan <laughs> <laughs> so you have to adapt you know and you have to think on your feet and you have to improvise and you have to deal with crises that you weren't expecting and hopefully you know that experience has has uh, made me more adaptable and uh, more able to go with the flow with things perhaps um but at the same time i like to think every decade um shapes you you know you're always evolving you're always growing personally and uh that's that's right and proper and that's how it should be you know yeah lovely great answer okay so that brings us to our final question which we ask to all of our guests when we remember Uh, and that (laughs) is what one thing from the 90s would you like to bring back well the first thing i thought of i'm i'm fearful that somebody might have said this already uh in one of your pods um because Everybody I talk to about it agrees with me. And it's a football thing again, and it's match of the day, and it's uh, goal of the month. I want Brilliant. I want Lightning Seeds, Life of Riley, in mm. the background when I'm watching goal of the month. Mm. Uh, that, to me, is was the best possible soundtrack to that little uh, segment Just of the show. And goal wasn't on the left foot. Oh, super! excellent with, with Matt Letizia oh. invariably being three of the ten <laughs> nowadays he'd probably you know launch a three-hour YouTube video about who really runs the goal of the month competition <laughs> that's true <laughs> oh fantastic well John that brings us to the end thank you so much for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and obviously we would love to have you back sometime uh, to talk about another aspect of 90s culture um, before you go though just a couple of quick things first of all um, what are you up to at the moment and uh, where can our listeners find out more about where you're playing, etc.? Well, at the moment, um, recovering from Glastonbury, <laughs> uh, but I've got some got some gigs coming up. I'm playing. I play with uh, my trio. It's just called the John Amor Trio, but that sometimes expands to a band called King Street Turnaround. And we have keyboard, a keyboard player as well. Um, and I'm really enjoying that, man. I'm probably enjoying playing live more than i've ever done uh in all honesty i think um i just feel so relaxed and determined to just have fun now without the pressure or ambition or agenda you know mm-hmm. uh just want to have fun and, uh, and i'm really enjoying that uh and we're we're playing gigs pretty regularly uh we haven't released anything yet uh, on record but uh we're planning that and it's all on um, johnamor.com. That's probably the best 
best thing to go and have a look at. Fantastic. And the, the last thing I have to ask, and, you know, this might be a world exclusive for the pod. I don't know. But I'm, but I'm, I'm going to ask in, in the hope. So uh, obviously the hoax have since returned uh, since since the split in 99 um, at various points over the over the following 20 or so years. Um, so is there another hoax reunion on the horizon at the moment? Is, is there going to be another string of gigs at some point in the future? Uh, well, the simple answer is, is no. Um... I don't. I don't think we'll do it again. I. I, I don't know. I mean, you never. You never know. Uh, uh, there was a time when I, you know, back in '99, I would have said the same thing. But you know, time passes, and and we did get back together, and we had a good time getting back together. You know, we did some good gigs. We we made a couple of albums, and it was it was good. And I'm glad we did it. But I feel like we've done it now. We're all scattered around the world. But no, I can't say I'm very enthusiastic about that idea. And I'm sorry to any hoax fans who might be listening. Uh, but that's how I feel about things. The rest of them, you know, you'll have to ask them. Yeah. But that's <laughs> well, there I we mean. go. There, there's there's an objective to get everybody else in the band uh, on the pod for, for an appearance and, <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> collect the set. Well, I have to say, you know, being down the front by your monitors at, at the Corn Exchange and Devices in the Christmas 2009 um, oh, was, was tantamount to a religious experience for me. Um, it has to be oh, said. You know what, I'll, I'll always have that. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm so proud of that band, and I'm proud to have been in it. And we we had great times. We did some great things. Well, John, once again, thanks so much for coming on the pod tonight. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, guys. I've really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again to John for that. That was that was really good. I, I do love I love our guests episodes it's really good to hear people's experiences of of what they were up to throughout those years well i'm sure he won't mind me saying this but he's he's a bit of a legend in my eyes um so to get him on the pod was brilliant and really look forward to having him back for liverpool in the 90s and in the near future um if you want to get in contact with us about anything you've heard today uh or anything in previous episodes uh you can do so in the usual manner so you can find us on twitter at all right 90s Email allright90s at gmail.com and facebook.com forward slash allright90s. That's all letters, no numbers. Uh, and then on Instagram, we are allright.90s.podcast. And we would love to hear from you, as always. And I think next episode, we are having our summer party, are we not, Stu? We are indeed, yes. We've been talking about it for months. We finally got it together. We've got a venue. We've got some door staff. We've got some special guests returning. And uh, we've got uh, even a little 90s board game that we're going to try and have a live play of and, and see if that works. So it's not going to be a regular episode next time. It's essentially just going to be us um, hanging around in the back room of a pub talking about the 90s. Um, actually, no, it sounds exactly like a regular episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, look forward to that in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, it will be our first ever outside broadcast. So if anything goes wrong technically, that will not be our next episode and you can forget everything we've just said. But fingers crossed, um, it, it will all work smoothly and uh, there'll be something a bit different for you next time. So uh, until then, um, have a lovely rest of your early summer, midsummer, and uh, yeah, we'll see you at the party next time. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Mine's a hooch. Bye.